The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. Let us pray. Gracious God, your word is a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet. Shine your light on our way, O God, and show us where you would have us go. This we pray in the name of the risen Christ, Jesus, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Throughout the season of Lent, and at every stop along the trail this Holy Week, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church has been looking at maps. Not any old maps. We've been studying the navigational charts of our faith. Maps that point people in the direction of God. Today, on Easter, the map of our faith directs our steps to a cemetery. Now, typically, this is not a destination that excites us. While human beings are pretty good at filling tombs, we're not so keen on spending time among them. Still, the map of Easter prods us. Leave your comfort zone. Grab your flashlight. Tail Mary Magdalene through the streets. Follow her steps, her steady steps, all the way to the graveyard. Listen now for God's word to you as it echoes from the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to John, beginning with the first verse. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and, and reached the tomb first. He, he bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes." 
But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she'd said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Easter doesn't start with lilies and hallelujahs. Easter starts in the quiet before sunrise. Easter starts in the hollow space left by Good Friday. Easter starts when Mary Magdalene walks into a cemetery. This is how our holy story goes. This is our testimony. Of course, e even though we have heard it countless times, elements of the church's Easter testimony still have the capacity to catch us off guard. We're going to the cemetery this morning? That can't be right. I'm wearing pastels. Somebody check the map. Are we really supposed to follow this broken-hearted Mary today? Are we really looking for God among the tombs? Increasingly, sociologists tell us Americans are uncomfortable with the whole idea of cemeteries. They unnerve us. They scare us. Growing up, though, visits to the cemetery were a regular part of my family's routine. On a spring day like this, my mother would stuff the back of our station wagon with begonias and gardening tools, and then she would haul my grandmother, my brother, and me to a cemetery in Westwood, New Jersey. And there we would trim the grass and plant flowers. And as we worked our way around each piece of chiseled granite, my mother and grandmother would entertain us with stories about those who lay side by side in the family plot. Visits to Westwood were such a part of my early life that I'm caught off guard today when people, adults, tell me they've never been to a cemetery 
never walked among gravestones. Now, it probably shouldn't surprise me. Today, when a family member dies, their corpse is often whisked away, their remains are discreetly immolated, and later their ashes are sprinkled on a body of water or tossed into the air on, on some mountaintop. There's no tomb, no marker, no name chiseled into granite. I'm not sure how I feel about all this. I do know human rituals change over time, and I don't want to judge. I really don't. In my experience, grieving people make the most loving decisions they can. But personally, I favor the old ways. I want to know where the dead have been tucked in. I want to know so that I can go and visit them. On the shore of the Athos Peninsula in northeastern Greece, within a stone throw of the waters of the Aegean Sea, lies Xenophontos, a 1,000-year-old monastery. And today, Xenophontos is home to about 50 monks. Every day, the monks go to work to sustain the life of the monastery. They cultivate gardens. They paint icons that they sell. They prepare food and eat together. And after a long day, the, the brothers hit the sack. They go to bed early. They'd better go to bed early because they get up at about three o'clock in the morning to start their day again. And they start the day with worship, a five-hour service every single day. The chapel where the monks pray is a unique place. Up front, there's an altar where incense burns and some of their beautifully painted icons hang. There are no seats, though, in the room. None. During services, the monks stand or sit or kneel on the floor. On either side of the brothers in the chapel, the walls are lined with shelves. And the shelves are lined with skulls, hundreds of them, five rows deep. Where did all these skulls come from? Well, at Xenophontos, when a monk dies, he is buried in the monastery's very small cemetery, just a body wrapped in a sheet, no casket. And there he remains, in the ground, for three years. But, but after three years, the monks dig the deceased's bones back up. Carefully, they wash the bones. They place them in a box, except for the skull. And one of the monks takes the skull and paints its former owner's name on the crown, along with his date of death. Once painted, the brother's skull finds its way to the chapel, to the shelf, next to the skulls of all the other monks who have for hundreds of years lived and died in that quiet place alongside the sea. When asked why the monks of Xenophonto surround themselves with the skulls of their dead brethren, one of them, Father Jerome, explains, the skulls are an invitation for us to think 
about our mortality. Today you're here, the next day you're not. If you remember your death every day, says Father Jerome, it will keep you from doing evil. Remember you are dust, we say on Ash Wednesday. Remember you are mortal because to forget is dangerous. There's wisdom here. Although given the busy lives that we lead, lives that permit us precious little time among the tombs, it can be easy to neglect this most basic fact. Fortunately, if you are worried about losing touch with your mortality, I have good news. There is an app that can help. About a year ago, Hansa Bergwall, a freelance software developer out in Brooklyn, designed an app for smartphones based on a Buddhist proverb. And the proverb goes like this, to be truly happy, a person must contemplate death five times a day. Now, to assist people in this contemplation, Bergwall and his friend designed a very simple program, and, and here's how it works. Five times a day, at random intervals, your phone will chime or buzz or do whatever it does to alert you that it has important news. In other words, the app masquerades as a newly arrived text or, or an urgent email or the latest outrageous political tweet. Although, when you pick up your phone, you won't find any of those things. All you will see is a simple banner covering the screen, and the banner always says the same thing. Don't forget, you are going to die. <laughs> Five times a day, don't forget, you are going to die. The developer has a sense of humor. He calls the app, We Croak. <laughs> so about a month ago, I downloaded We Croak to my phone. I wanted to check it out, you know, just in case some of you hipsters were curious. FAPC is a full-service church, Easter services, and software reviews. <laughs> now, I have to admit... At first, we croak seemed a little silly and a lot annoying. The app interrupted me during meetings and phone calls and once in the middle of a haircut. You want to get that? My barber asked, looking at my phone vibrating its way across his counter. Sure, I said. I picked it up. Don't forget, you are going to die. I tossed it back on the counter. I get the point, but until it actually happens, I'm going to need to maintain some basic level of personal grooming. <laughs> Gradually though, law of averages, the message started popping up at more provocative moments. Like once in the midst of yelling at our dog who was Barking his head off at some phantom menace, the phone buzzed. Don't forget, you're going to die. Fergus got a walk in the park out of that one. <laughs> one morning, 
while getting ready for work and looking out the window at the weather, my wife began talking about how much she likes rainy days. I've been this way, she said, ever since I was a little girl. I love the mist in the air and the puddles on the ground. And just then my phone buzzed. Don't forget, you're going to die. I'm ashamed to admit it, but that message grounded me. It made me focus on the moment, on Amy's words. I was, to use the language of the mindfulness movement, more present. I could picture my spouse as a little girl walking in the rain. Somehow, we croak's intrusive reminder about death helped me focus on the simple beauty of life. Beauty that was right in front of my nose. Contemplate death, say the Buddhists, five times a day and you will be happier. Maybe, maybe so. Now, after trying out We Croak, I, I can say I, I did feel one random ping at a time, like grime was being washed from my eyes. Clearly, I began to conclude, the Buddhists are onto something. The, the monks of Xenophontos with their, with their painted skulls lining the walls are onto something. Contemplating, contemplating mortality can be a tonic for the modern soul. Many people will find that it improves their ability to see. Many, but not all. Mary Magdalene, for example, does not need we croak. Mary Magdalene doesn't need a reminder that life is short for pity's sake. Mary walked Good Friday's path. She followed Christ's bloody footprints. She watched the soldiers kill Jesus. Mary doesn't need a chirp from a smartphone or a skull on a shelf to acquaint her with death. She knows that life is, is fragile and fleeting. Mary Magdalene knows that, that death may be waiting around the next corner, waiting to punch a hole right through your heart. Back in March, Amy and I went to a powerful performance at the public theater of Simon Stevens' play, Seawall. The play is an hour-long monologue delivered by a father who has lost a beloved daughter. While cavorting on a seawall, the young girl trips, falls, and strikes her head on a rock. She's dead. Utterly devastated, this father pours out his heart. The universe is, is bleak and empty to this tortured man. There's, there's no meeting, no God, no cosmic force out there working for good. In the most riveting moment, in an intense play, this father looks at the audience and howls, if this can happen, anything can happen. Mary Magdalene knows the truth of these words. If the universe can permit the execution of Jesus, 
If it can stand idle as the prophet of love, this, this preacher of grace, this, this healer of souls is nailed to a cross, then surely it plays no favorites. If Good Friday can happen, anything can happen. Anything. The indignities never stop. Mary's heart clenches when she sees that the, the stone has been rolled away. Someone's disturbed the tomb. She runs back to the upper room and fetches two of the disciples. They race to the garden, peer in the cave. Mary's right, he's gone. The endlessly cruel Romans have stolen his corpse. The disciples sprint away. They don't seem to know what to do. Mary sits on the edge of the tomb. She stares at the spot where Jesus' body once lay. And she begins to weep. Tears fill her eyes. They, they blur Mary's vision. And in a way, this is sort of Easter's inside joke. <laughs> Do you see it? Mary is weeping over a truth and honest to Pete, hard truth, the truth of we croak, the truth that death has claimed her friend, the truth that death's snap will claim us all. Although as Mary weeps, her tears obscure another truth, the truth walking toward her through the garden. This second truth, this this deeper magic, as C.S. Lewis put it, is what Easter holds. What is this second truth? Well, it goes something like this. Yes, life is short. Skull on the shelf, short. But life also just plain is. Life exists. Life, something that we had no hand in stirring up billions of years ago, pulses around us like a garden, like, like the flowers stuck in the cross outside. Life refuses to be stopped by death. On Easter morning, this is the truth that walks toward humanity. In the middle of a cemetery, the life of the world approaches the world's first gardener. Fresh from tending the blooms and trimming around the graves, pauses alongside a weeping woman. With a heart overflowing, he looks at his friend and calls her by name, Mary. And at that word, that simple address, uh, uh, on hearing her name spoken, the film Covering Mary's eyes dissolves, life and death swirl together, and when the image resolves, when, when her vision clears, Mary finds herself face to face with her risen Lord. Rabboni, she says. This past winter, the confirmands of this church went on a retreat with the Reverend Werner Ramirez to Princeton, New Jersey. And on the trip, they visited Princeton Seminary and its gorgeous library. They walked through a cemetery and they stopped by a, a Methodist church Werner once served in the area. 
After the trip, the confirmands came before the session of this church to be received into membership, and the session asked them some questions. One of the questions they asked was, what part of the trip, what, what part of that retreat you took did you enjoy the most? Without pause, one of the confirmands, Andrew Rombot, responded, that's easy, the walk through the cemetery. As strange as it may sound, in that cemetery, my faith came alive. Well, yes, Andrew, it does sound strange. But this odd discovery of yours also happens to be the church's Easter proclamation. This is how Easter operates. It plunks us down in a cemetery, it unspools a map, and it says, you are here. You are here among the tombstones. You are sitting in the midst of a room where there are shelves of skulls on the wall. And so, yes, Easter starts out a little like we croak. It, it reminds us that death is near. Death awaits us. Death scars us. Death's marks never leave the body of our Lord. Easter is not squeamish. It calls it like it is. You humans live among the tombs. This is a fact. But Easter isn't done. Not yet. Not hardly. The testimony of our faith is that this fact is, is subsumed, is surrounded, is, is undermined by a deeper truth. As many of you know, every Easter, at some point during the day, my phone rings, and when I pick it up, a voice with no introduction, no pleasantries of any kind declares, Jesus is on the loose. The next sound I hear is the click, the connection ending, but I know who it is. It's my roommate from seminary. It's his wacky way of saying Christ is risen. Now, over the years, other friends, including many of you, have joined in. Now I get all sorts of texts and emails, some of them at 12.01, <laughs> declaring Jesus is on the loose. Oh, okay. It wouldn't be Easter for me without this wild chorus. So here's my question. What if that were the news interrupting us? five times a day? What if we were to develop an app that at random moments would ping our phone, mimicking all of the other self-important things that clamor for our intention, but instead of an email or a text or a political update, when you pick up your device, it simply says, Jesus is on the loose. Now, I suppose that could be annoying. <laughs> might be difficult to explain an interruption like that to your barber, but it might also expose you to the drip, drip, life-changing drip of Easter. Jesus is on the loose. Remember, 
God will meet you in the tombs. God enters into the places where death reigns, where fear grips your heart, and there God melts the shackles. God rolls back the stone. God calls you by name. God is the one working, ceaselessly working to free you, to strip the clothes of the grave from your world-weary soul to fold them neatly and to set them aside and then to outfit you for Easter. Jesus is on the loose. Remember, something we did not do is at work in the world, loose in the world. Go and search for that power. Look for the resurrected one. Hunt for Jesus wherever he may be, on, on subway cars and in, in office cubicles and in, in war-torn lands and, and refugee camps at the dinner table and, and walking in the rain. Jesus is on the loose. Have courage. Remember that your precious wild lives, these, these things to which we cling for such a brief span, yearn to follow the good. They, they yearn to respond to, to the fear and the anger and the cynicism that, that, that haunt our world with healing and with hope. Go, says Easter. Take a needle and thread and go. Get busy. Start mending the torn places in your communities and, and your families. Sure, it's a tall order, but Jesus is on the loose. My friends, if Easter can happen, anything can happen. Or to put it another way, the great mystery at the heart of the world is not that we croak, but that we live. My friends, God has done what only God could do. Christ is risen. Go from this place with courage in your heart, with an alleluia on your lips, and with eyes wide and searching because Jesus is on the loose. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Thank you and God bless.